This morning's message is titled, The Glory of Christ. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. We will uh, transition into Matthew 17 next week, but I wanted to sort of get a running start into the topic this morning and sort of uh, prepare your minds and your hearts to receive what God has to say through His Word, uh, certainly next week, but also for today. In Matthew 5, 8, Jesus told the crowds, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This promise comes in a long line of blessings for those who belong to the Lord and who trust in Him for eternal life. But this specific blessing is unique, as we are told in Scripture that no man can see God and live. And yet to behold God is the pinnacle of human experience. As no other sight is more beautiful, more radiant, more awe-inspiring, more glorious. And so for the Christian, our deepest desire is to see our Savior face to face. But this is not a new desire. Many worshipers have desired to see God, and yet few have. However, there is one instance of a man who sees the glory of God on the top of a mountain merely 3,500 years ago, a man named Moses who dared to ask, Lord, show me your glory. So I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 33 with me this morning. We're going to move a a couple places today, but Exodus 33 is where we're going to begin. Now in Exodus 32, the previous chapter before that, Israel has sinned by worshiping the golden calf, which brings about God's wrath exercised through Moses. The people, however, repent in chapter 33, and Moses offers up a prayer to the Lord. And God shows mercy on the people because of Moses, and he pledges that his presence will continue to go with them. But then Moses makes a request of the Lord. So Exodus chapter 33, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about when my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so he pleads with the Lord and Moses asks the Lord to show him the glory of the Lord. And now at this point, we have to ask, well, what is God's glory? We hear that word used all the time in Christian circles. What is God's glory? The Hebrew word that's used here is kabod or kabod, which is translated glory or honor or abundance. There's also a sense in which the word conveys a sense of heaviness. It is the heaviness of God, if you will, if you could take that rendering of it. But I think it's safe to assume here that Moses doesn't really know what he's asking for. He doesn't understand what he's truly looking to find. What he's hoping for is a chance to see God as he really is. He's already seen the works of God. He's heard the words of God. I want to see you, Lord. Now, God tells him in verse 20 that he cannot see the face of God and live, but God is determined to show him something. 
And yet, mark what the Lord says in verse 19. He says, I myself will make my goodness pass before you. I believe this gives us a window, at least a little window, into what exactly is the glory of God. He calls it His goodness. And then we skip down to verse, uh, chapter 34, verse 5, where God actually does begin to do this, and we see a little bit more. So skip down to Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And so we see here, I want you to notice that the Lord does not display the goodness, or, or I should say, what, notice what the Lord does display in His goodness of the glory that He shows Him. He passes by in a glory cloud, if you will, and as He passes by, He does something. He doesn't just show a sign or show an image of something. He actually speaks as he passes by. And he declares first his own name. He says, the Lord, the Lord God. And then he lists a series of his divine attributes. Look at them again with me. In verse 6, the Lord proclaims, the Lord, the Lord God. And then he says this, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children to the, gener- to the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. And so what he does here in displaying his glory is he lists these divine attributes. Divine attributes are also known as God's perfections. They are the qualities of God, of who he is in his perfection. And so, to define what the glory of God is, we might say something like this. God's glory is the totality or sum of all of His attributes. Now, we have to be very careful here as we say this because we know that that God's glory, God is not some kind of complex equation here. Meaning that God does not consist of love plus goodness plus omniscience plus omnipotence plus mercy plus omnipresence. He doesn't just create a whole whole, uh, consummation of terms and then all those terms added together complexly equals God. Rather, we know that God is simple. He's simple. In other words, He is the perfection of all grace and all love and all mercy. So God is who He is. God is purely and truly God without parts or passions. You can't split Him up and divide Him into into perfections or into attributes. God is who He is. And to behold His glory is to see the full expression of His divine essence manifested. God, I want to see you as you are. Show me your glory. And so for for us to see the glory of God, to see his glory, is to see the brilliance of all that he is on display. And so when God says, I will make my goodness pass before you, Moses, he's essentially saying this. I am perfection personified. Here, let me show you. 
And so God's glory is the display of His divine attributes. But there's another aspect to this for us to consider. In putting His own character on display, in putting His own loving kindness and compassion and mercy and wrath on display, there is also a visible component to this as well. In fact, a few verses later in verses 29 through 35, and if you know the text, you'll know this well, Moses comes down off the mountain. He comes down from meeting with God. And as he comes down, his face begins to reflect the radiant glory of God in such a way that is perceptively bright. And people, when they see this, they're blinded. And so Moses has to wear a veil over his face to shield the people from the blinding brightness of God's glory that is residual on his skin. That's how radiant God's glory is, that when it's reflected on Him, even the reflection of His glory is too much for people to withstand. And so, to us, God's glory is perceived as a bright and shining light that is brighter than 10,000 suns. But this is how all of Israel perceived the glory of God. And this glory and goodness and holiness, it's too perfect for anyone to behold. In fact, when Samson's parents are visited by the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 13, his father, Samson's father, Manoah, laments, we shall surely die for we have seen God. So who can truly behold the glory of God? Who can stand before Him in His perfection and not be destroyed by their own sinfulness? Who is worthy of to see God as He really is? The answer is no one. No one can see God and live. And this, beloved, is why the incarnation of Jesus Christ is so amazing. Turn over to John chapter 1 in your Bible. John chapter 1. We're having fun now. I'm getting excited. We get to be in John today. The revealing of Jesus Christ to the world has really marked a change in how God would engage with His people moving forward. In the Old Covenant, God spoke through prophets and priests and even spoke through donkeys once in a while. But in His glory, His was always hidden. It was hidden in pillars of fire and pillars of smoke. The glory was, was tucked away in the temple behind curtains and veils. And only the high priest once a year was allowed to enter in and see something of the presence of God. But now the New Testament reveals to us the coming of God to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Now John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 notes that this person who's called the Word, the Word, was in the beginning with God, dwelling with Him in light and in life. He's the creator and the giver of all life. And John even says that this Word was and is the eternal God. But then he says this in verse 14. I want to draw your attention to John 1.14. The Apostle John is writing this prologue and he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And mark this, And we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John describes this divine person, this Word, as becoming flesh. That's the Son of God taking on human form, being born to the Virgin Mary and living His life as a man in bodily form on earth. 
as the person of Jesus. Then he says he dwelt among us. This infinite, eternal, powerful, wonderful God is now living on earth and walking around as a man. But then John testifies this. Despite the fact that he's walking around as a man, as the person of Jesus, we see here, he says, and we saw his glory. Well, what glory? He then further defines. He says, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you look at verse 17, he continues and says that grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so he puts all these elements together here in his prologue. We put it all together when we see here that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the eternal Word, came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, who although He took on human flesh and is incarnate, still retains His eternal relation with the Father as the begotten Son. We've talked about before how the Son of God is begotten of the Father eternally. Now, all of us have been begotten by our parents, and so we have a birthday, but to say that Jesus is the eternal Son of God means He's eternally begotten, has always come from the Father as the begotten Son forever. He has no birthday. He has no death day as a person. He has always existed as the second person of the Trinity. Or as Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of His nature. Or as Jesus told Philip in John 14.9, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Or as Jesus elsewhere said, I and the Father are one. What are we talking about? We're talking about one in divine essence and distinct in personhood. Therefore, if God has a glory that can be displayed, then the Son has a glory that can be displayed. And that's why John says, we have seen His glory. We've seen it. Now this theme of the glory of Christ is continued all throughout John's Gospel. It's elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. All through the New Testament we see it as well. But in John's Gospel, it's very distinctive. The first demonstration of this glory comes at the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. In John 2, Jesus miraculously turns this water into wine at the wedding, remember that? And at the conclusion of the story, John notes this in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And the disciples believed in Him. Now, when we say that Jesus manifested His glory... Is it that in turning the water to wine that somehow Jesus' clothes suddenly radiated and the disciples now had to veil their faces when they saw Christ? Is that what he's talking about? No. Rather, they beheld the divine works that demonstrated the power of Jesus' glory. How are we to understand this? Well, let me illustrate to you what I'm talking about, this principle of seeing glory through works illustration here whenever you and i might see an exceptionally gifted person operating at the peak of their abilities we have a saying what do we say well we say well they were in their glory right i remember watching michael jordan play basketball when i was a kid and just watching the guy go up and down the court i mean it was just glorious it was wonderful he was so good at his job Or if we've watched Tom Brady march down the field and win the Super Bowl in a clutch, we're like, wow, that's amazing, right? Because he's in his glory. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Or you listen to a piano virtuoso play Rachmaninoff flawlessly, 
and you just marvel because they're at the pinnacle of their ability, of their giftedness. Or beholding the work of Michelangelo. Or seeing a, a, a vision of a building designed by a world-renowned architect. Or maybe it's a medical student who watches a surgeon perform an impossible surgery and does it with skill and ease. We know what it's like to behold brilliant works that far exceed our own ability and our own expectations. Now, that's just humans doing human things. Now imagine watching God be God. That's glorious, truly. That is the display of His glory. And so, when we behold Jesus remake a blind man's eyes out of mud from the ground, or when we we see Him calm the sea with only a word that is spoken, or we hear Him teach a text that confounds the greatest theological minds of His day, or even when we see Jesus raising Lazarus after four days being dead, what does He say to Martha after that happens? Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So Martha, when I raised your brother after four days in the ground, and remember, you were worried because he was already beginning to to decompose, and you were so worried it wasn't going to happen, but I did it, and I told you I'd show you my glory. And so to behold the glory of Christ is to see Him displaying His divine majesty. It's seeing God being God. And the disciples were able to testify, we have seen His glory. But there's more here. There is the sense that there is a progressive revelation of His glory too. All throughout the ministry, Jesus spoke about the Father glorifying Him. John 8.54, Jesus told an angry mob, if I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. I can talk about all the things I'm going to do, but he says, that's not going to do anything in your eyes. But then he says this, it is my Father who glorifies me. Now what does he mean by this? Is it that there's some kind of glory that's missing that the Father must add to the Son to make Him more glorious? That's impossible. Christ is glorious no matter what. He has been glorious. He is glorious. He ever will be glorious. Rather, instead, this is the Father who orchestrates more and more events on earth that will put the glory of Christ on display. You see what I'm talking about now? That there's the Father in His providence marching along and creating opportunities and events and advents for for opportunities to show the glory of God in Christ. Through His teachings, through His miracles, through His acts. And yet we see the glory of Christ that will culminate at the cross. Turn over to John chapter 17. The events of John 17, they come here at the eve of our Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross. And the focus of the thinking here is how his death and subsequent resurrection will secure his church and bring ultimate glory to the Father. And so he prays. This is what is known as the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Just the first five verses for today. He says here, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, 
that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now listen to the the timing of all this moment. This is the night before he goes to the cross. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. How is it we see the Son will glorify the Father on the cross? Well, the Son here is the only one. The only one who is able to intercede for lost sinners. The only one who is able to offer a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of His people, to satisfy the wrath of God sufficiently, to put the penalty of death to death, to resurrect in life, in power, and to ascend back into heaven in victory. The only one who can do this is Jesus Christ. And in that way, He's the only one who's able to save humanity, and He's the only one who's able to glorify God completely. And when He accomplishes that work, The whole world watches His glory on display. This is what what led the Roman soldier who was watching the whole scene to exclaim, surely this was the Son of God. Even a Roman soldier who has no interest in Christ watched Him give His life and conclude this must be the Son of God. He saw His glory. It was undeniable to Him. The glory of Christ was on display at the cross. But not only this, but three days later, we see Christ, according to Romans 6-4, being raised in glory, Paul says. There was a glorious resurrection. And the disciples then saw Jesus again after the resurrection, and they again concluded, we have seen His glory. In fact, they were captivated by this glory. And we are meant to be captivated by His glory as well. The eminent Puritan theologian John Owen has written a a beautiful treatise on the glory of Christ, and I would commend it to you. John Owen's very difficult to read in his original volumes, but the, the Banner of Truth, which is a publisher, they have something called the Puritan Paperback Series. And their edition of the glory of Christ has been abridged and edited and modernized so it's easier to read, but I would commend that volume to you. It's an excellent volume on the glory of Christ. And so, Banner of Truth, Puritan Paperback, John Owen, The Glory of Christ. But I want to just give you a little bit of some of what he's talking about here. In his book, he writes this, Beholding the glory of Christ is one of the greatest privileges that believers are capable of in this world, or even in that which is to come. Indeed, it is by beholding the glory of Christ that believers are gradually transformed into His image and then brought into the eternal enjoyment of it because they shall be forever like Him for they shall see Him as He is. And then he cites 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 1 John 3, which is where he gets that concept from. But you might be asking now, okay, that sounds really good. But how can I behold the glory of Christ when He is not bodily here on this planet right now? Now certainly He's with us in, his, in the Spirit, right? But how do I see His glory? And Owen actually answers that objection and notes that there are two ways that a believer can behold the glory of Christ. Number one, by faith 
and number two, by sight. And only a select few people have had the opportunity to behold Christ's glory was when He was here on earth the first time. And even that was only a glimmer, just a hint. And we'll read about this next week, but when Peter, James, and John, and they behold Christ transfigured on the mountain, it was, it was such a short time. It was so brief. And yet we are meant to behold His glory. Well, how? Well, when He was on the earth, we were... We were able to see Him, or if, we were, if you were here, you could have seen it by sight. But therefore, we are not able to do this. We're only able to behold His glory by faith. By faith. See, here's the problem. Many people desire to see Christ here on earth. We all want the same thing. We all want to see Christ. But what do worshipers do when they want to see Him? Well, they erect statues and images and depictions. Every couple years there's a new Jesus movie or a new Jesus TV show that will come out because people want to see His glory, don't they? Or people will write books and they'll try to imagine what He would have said. Or you have books like Jesus Calling that put new words into His mouth because He wants something fresh. All these efforts to try to, to behold His glory and to see Him and to hear Him and we, we want to have it by sight. That's the desire. Because we want to see Him. But Owen says here that these are false images and they ultimately don't satisfy. I've seen all the Jesus movies that there are. I'm sure you have too. And they're interesting and they're they're entertaining. But you can watch these movies and they don't ultimately satisfy. Why? Because that's not Jesus. You see an actor on the screen, that's not him. And when you see the the works that they show with movie magic, that's not His glory. That's a human representation of what we imagine the glory of God to be. It doesn't satisfy. Owen says this, it is only as we behold the glory of Christ by faith here in this world that our hearts will be drawn more and more to Christ and to the full enjoyment of the sight of His glory hereafter. Now I'm not disparaging Reading books and watching movies, that's fine. But what I'm I'm saying is don't look to that to be the satisfaction of what your heart really desires. Your heart really desires to see Christ, but we must see Him by faith. After all, doesn't Hebrews 11.1 testify that faith is the assurance of things that are unseen? So how do we behold the glory of Christ by faith on this earth? Well, there are several ways. Let me give you three. Number one, behold the glory of Christ by faith in His words and works revealed in Scripture. Revealed in Scripture. When we read the Gospels and we study His life and we hear the words in our minds that He says and we see the the stories displayed through the Scriptures, we hear Him speak, we watch Him act, and it's with eyes of faith as we read the Word and hear the Word, it's with eyes of faith that our heart beholds the glory and and harnesses it in our hearts. How many of you have read one of the the accounts or the stories in the Gospels and you, you can close your eyes and you know the story and you can see it in your mind, you can see it in your heart, you can hear Him speaking to you. And it's better than watching a movie. Because it feels even closer. Why? Because the Spirit's using His Word to make Him alive to your senses inside of you. You behold Him by faith. 
And in this way, Christ dwells forever within us because we keep the Word fresh in our minds. Movies will come and go. Books will come and go. TV shows will come and go. Pictures will come and go. But the Word of God is living and active, is He not? And this is why, this is my contention, beloved, this is why expository sermons are helpful to us. Why? Because they open up the text. And people say it all the time, and not just to me, but other people who do this kind of preaching. They'll say all kinds of congratulatory things about the sermon. Let me tell you a secret, it ain't the sermon. It's not the preacher. All we're doing is taking what's already here and making it clear to you and explaining it to you and exposing it to you. It is the Spirit who's using His Word to help you to behold the glory of Christ in the Scriptures. So when you're sitting here saying, this is glorious, it's not me. You're seeing the glory of Christ in His Word. That's what's so marvelous. That's what's so impactful. That's what brings tears to our eyes. Not the preacher. Not the sermon. It's Christ in His Word. And so that's why you can hear expository sermon after sermon after sermon and you just can't get enough, right? The satisfaction, there's no bottom to it. You can keep on listening. I can't hear John 17 being read enough. I can keep on digging and digging and digging and digging. I'll never get to the bottom because Christ is so glorious here. His Word always always satiates our appetites and yet still there's no ultimate satisfaction on this planet because we keep on thirsting for more behold the glory of christ by faith through his words and through his works in the scriptures number two behold the glory of christ by faith through pondering truths about him ponder him this is the study of theology now what is theology that's a fancy word What is theology? Well, theology is Bible truths and Bible verses that are woven together to form doctrine. So what does the whole Bible say about a specific topic in Scripture? That's what your doctrine is built out of. That is theology. Every single person does theology. You have an idea in your mind about some spiritual truth about God. We're all theologians. Sometimes we're bad theologians when our theology is bad. If we have bad ideas about God that are not formulated from Scripture. But when your ideas are scriptural and biblical and understood rightly, that's good theology. And so something happens here when we meditate on these truths about the Lord. When you ponder and meditate on the incarnation. When you marvel and you say, how is it that the eternal God can become manifest in human flesh and walk around and talk and not look like anybody special and yet be glorious. And your mind begins to just wander into these realms of beautiful truth. And you say, oh Lord, I don't understand this completely, but the more I do meditate and ponder, you become more glorious to me. Or when you consider the impeccability of Christ, not just that Christ was sinless, but He was not able to sin. He's still human and has all the parameters of a human nature, yet without sin, and yet His divinity keeps Him completely and utterly holy. And you marvel at that. What does it mean for the Lord Jesus never to sin? And yet how is He tempted like I am, but yet He doesn't give in? That's a mystery that's marvelous to me, and I worship the Lord when I consider His holiness. When you contemplate the offices of Christ as prophet and priest and king, 
And when you contemplate how the eternal Son of God could humble Himself down in order to save a sinner like me, when I contemplate His abject humiliation, why would Jesus die for me? And yet He does. And you ponder that truth, beloved, and you apply it to your own heart, and you say, oh Lord, salvation is so glorious to me because of You that You would even die for a wretched man. Oh Lord, soak your minds, beloved, in truths about Christ and you will see His glory by faith. Number three, behold the glory of Christ by faith through His acts of providence. Through His acts of providence. When you see the evidences of Christ working in your own life, you ponder His glory, don't you? When He makes His goodness pass by you in some form and you fall down and worship Him. When He convicts you of sin and then comforts you with forgiveness, praise Him for His glory. Or when He saves a beloved friend you've been praying for for years. Ever happened to you before? You pray, oh Lord, please save that person. Then He does. And you marvel, oh Lord, I can't believe you did that, but you did. And you glorify His name for saving somebody you've been praying for. When God provides money for a bill you couldn't otherwise pay, and you see His glory and you say, wow. Or when He saves your life from a car crash and places you at the right place at the right time, and you marvel when He brings healing when a doctor had given up on you. All these ways, all these acts of providence where God is always working in marvelous ways, we are meant to see His glory and marvel and worship Him. This isn't just coincidence. This is God blessing and being kind to His beloved creatures. In all the ways He displays the goodness of His glory and providence, praise Him. Praise Him. These, beloved, these are just a few of the ways that we behold His glory by faith. But we must, we must. John Owen says, No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. We are meant to behold Him. We are meant to ponder Him. We're meant to meditate on Him. We're meant to fixate on Him. We're meant to know Him and grow in Him and love Him supremely. And in doing so, by faith, we evidence that we are born of God and that one day we will see Him face to face. If you make your business about beholding Him now in the Scriptures, in truth, in providence, and more, when you behold Him by faith, One day when you see Him, it'll be all the more sweet. See, every Christian who beholds Christ by faith in this life will behold Him by sight in the next life. You can be sure of it. Owen writes this, When we awake in the other world with our minds purified and rectified, then we shall always be satisfied because we shall always be beholding Him and His glory. He says this, I love this, our eyes and our minds will never get tired 
And we shall be like the four living creatures which do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come in heaven, he says, we shall be continually admiring and praising God in Christ, never needing any rest or to be interrupted. You will be with Him. And whatever you're doing, whether it's creative, whether you're serving or laboring or enjoying, whatever you're doing in heaven, you will always have your gaze fixed on Christ and you will never stop marveling at His presence. You will spend eternity totally enraptured and overjoyed at the sight of the One who made you and gave you life and saved you. And you'll never get bored. You'll never be tired. You'll never be weary. You will always be completely in love with the Son of God and see Him in His glory. The apostles, they beheld the glory of Christ in part. We behold the glory of Christ by faith. But one day, we will all behold His glory by sight. And the question I have then is how can you be sure that you will see Him someday? Because there may be some even sitting here right now who says, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to see Him. Because I don't know if I belong to Him. Never really thought about it before. Well, let me tell you that if you don't have a love for Christ, it evidences that you don't have salvation in Christ. And it's because of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness not only veils the glory of Christ that we don't see Him, but our sinfulness actually puts His judgment onto us. We will not see His glory. We will only see His wrath and His judgment as we perish. Our sin is an affront to God. It is unholiness. It is unrighteousness. It is debauchery in His eyes. And so how, how can I be free from this curse? Behold Him by faith. See your sin for what it really is. And confess to God, Lord, I don't deserve heaven. I've turned against heaven. I've turned against everything that is good because I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. And how can He forgive you? By giving His Son on the cross who dies and pays the penalty for your sin, displaying God's full glory. He does so to redeem sinners, to buy us back from the pit. He pays for us on the cross and gives us eternal life with new eyes to see, a new heart to behold, new ears to hear. And then at that point, when we have a new nature in Christ, then we begin to see Him as He really is, as marvelous, as precious, as glorious. Do you know Jesus? He says Himself, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Do you know God? And if you do, praise Him. Praise Him for His glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You as we comprehend the majesty and the splendor of Your glory. As we contemplate the perfection and the brilliance of who You are. Not that we can take Your attributes and splice them up and composite them in some way. 
but rather layer upon layer upon layer of abject beauty and glory are displayed to us in the Scriptures, in the truth of Your Word, and even through the acts of Your providence and Your goodness to us. And Lord, You have made Yourself glorious and made Yourself known to us in our hearts by faith. And all of us who know You through the Son know You as a loving Father, as a glorious Creator, as a friend of sinners, as one who our soul loves. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us to see Your glory and the glory of the Spirit and the glory of the Son. And help us never to grow tired. Lord, I pray that the things of this world become utterly boring to us. Whatever is here, whatever it's technology, entertainment, futile pleasures, whatever is a waste of our time, that we would see that as an abject waste of our time and a waste of our life. And as that dies in us, Lord, that You would revive and ignite a passion for Your glory and Your truth. We would just be like insatiable, have insatiable appetites. We would always seek after You and want to know more and more and more that our, our hunger would increase and our thirst would increase and only find satisfaction in You. Lord, there are so many days when even in my own heart I confess to You that I don't have that where things of this world become enticing and the love that I have, that I know I have for You has grown cold. And Lord, I know I'm not alone. And so please forgive us when our love for You grows cold and our interest in spiritual things begins to grow dull. Lord, forgive us. And more than forgive us, heal us. Make us to love You all the more because You are worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship, and You are worthy of all glory we could ascribe to You. Praise You, O glorious God. And we do so in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.